You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. Father, we thank you uh, for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to gather from so many places. Thanks for our common commitments that draw us together in Christ and uh, for the privilege of uh, facilitating your people in worship. We thank you for that great privilege. Thanks for what you're teaching us in these days. Enlarge our hearts and our vision. We pray that might happen even in this hour now uh, as we see uh, wondrous things in your word. We pray for your guidance and your blessing. I pray for each brother and sister and the ministries they represent, that you bless them and their lives and what they take away from this place and incorporate into their own service for you. Thank you for this time. Now we pray your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome. Thanks for coming. Uh, My name is Ron Mann. I'm from Memphis, Tennessee, where I serve as a pastor of worship and missionary in residence. Uh Uh-oh, Dr. Kreider just walked in. Uh, At First Evangelical Church there, I was uh, where I was full-time worship pastor for 12 years, and then I was a full-time missionary for eight years teaching on worship overseas, and then the church asked me back on staff, so we worked out this hybrid role uh, where they released me 12 weeks a year to travel, uh, but also I plan and lead worship at our church, so it's a privilege to be able to try to keep those balls in the air at any, at any rate. Uh, before we jump into our topic, I just want to mention some resources I have available, uh, free resources if they're of interest to you. Uh, first of all, I have a ministry website, uh, WORR.org, for Worship Resources International. There's a lot of different links there to other websites, resources, articles, papers, uh, recordings, different kinds of things. So if you're interested, uh, they're there for the taking. Uh, also do a monthly worship newsletter called Worship Notes. You can find it at this web address, warnotes.wordpress.com. And uh, there's a place there you can even sign up for a monthly reminder when a new one is posted on that website. Also publish a daily worship quote, though I haven't gotten to it yet today. I need to. (laughs) A daily worship quote in a blog format uh, at wrr.wordpress.com. You can also sign up to get those by email, too. This is sort of a sort of a legacy of uh, Chip Stam, who had his worship quote of the week and his widow allowed me to, to mail out to everybody that used to get that weekly uh, worship quote from Dr. Stam, who was on the faculty here before he died prematurely of cancer. So um, standing on uh, big shoulders there and uh, trying to get those out daily. But if that's of interest to you, uh, I'm also part of a network of uh, people involved globally uh, with worship type ministries all over the world. It's called the International Council of Ethnodoxologists, which is a pretty daunting title. But uh, ethnodoxology is simply the study of how the world's people, Christians all over the world, worship the one true God through Christ. And their website is worldofworship.org. There's a big wide world out there, and if uh, you're interested in learning more about what's being done among the peoples of the earth, uh, that's a great resource through that website and the network it represents. Also, uh, for the last eight years or so, there's been a biblical worship study group uh, section at the Evangelical Theological Society. Uh, I mentioned that um, uh, because all those past papers 
are available on this website, etsworship.wordpress.com. Uh, had many uh, great teachers uh, give papers there. You see uh, Michael Farley, David Nelson, John Piper even gave one, Lester Ruth, and other people whose names you'd probably recognize. So those papers are, again, there uh, for the reading as you, as you have opportunity and have interest to do that. Uh, our topic for today uh, is called Proclamation and Praise, Jesus, Our Worship Leader. And uh, I'm excited you're here because I think for those of you who are worship leaders, uh, I have some really good news for you, and uh, that it's not all up to you. And uh, we're going to see uh, what makes true worship really powerful, and uh, I think it's a liberating uh, truth. Um, so I'm glad to be able to share it with you. To jump into the topic, just to consider, um, as we consider worship in the church, what makes worship good? And probably preaching the choir here, not something we would, uh, any of you here would drop into, but sometimes people think, well, is it the right song or the right worship set, the right anointed worship leader, or the right talent, the right amount of practice, right amount of sincerity coming with the right heart? And what I want us to see in this hour is that good worship comes, the power of true worship comes from the promised ministry of the living Lord Jesus Christ to be in our midst when we gather for worship. And that he is the one that truly leads us in our worship and presents us our worship to the Father on our behalf. And what we're dealing with here is the sin of trying to do worship in our own strength. That's what we want to combat and look at God's word to see that we're not left uh, to our own strength alone uh, when it comes to leading worship. If you can see this picture, not too well, but uh, anybody know what biblical scene this represents? Yeah, so take, uh, Genesis 28, Jacob's sleeping and he sees the vision, Jacob's ladder. Uh, and uh, or a ramp as some expositors say but anyway this connection between uh, heaven and earth and the angels ascending and descending and perhaps you've uh, seen this before but there's a fascinating passage when Jesus is calling his disciples in John chapter 1 where he says to Nathaniel he says I'll say to you you will see heaven open in the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man and uh, it, with almost the exact wording that we see in Genesis 28, but with one crucial difference uh, from Genesis 28. And what is that difference? Okay, the Son of Man. It's not a ladder, but the Son of Man. And, and, Jesus, and we could, there's more we could say about that passage in John, but it's a fascinating instance where, where Jesus seems to be saying, because the language is so close to Genesis 28, he seems to be referencing uh, that passage and saying that in a way probably Jacob didn't fully understand I am the Jacob's ladder I am the fulfillment of Jacob's vision that he had in the dream I am the true connection the bridge between heaven and earth and God and man and we'll see just how important that is I hope in our session today there's an old book that's uh, still available used on uh, Amazon and other used book sites called Jacob's ladder the meaning of worship by William Nichols. And it talks about Jesus Christ as the true connection, the true power of worship, the true uh, bridge and ladder between heaven and earth. Uh, another book 
that I am greatly indebted to that I mentioned to you is called Worship Community and the Triune God of Grace by a Scottish theologian named James B. Torrance, where I first read about the issue of, of Christ as the center and the leader of our worship. Uh, as we talk today about Hebrews 2.12 on this pregnant little verse we want to unpack in a little bit, uh, Reggie Kidd, who's at uh, RTS in Florida, also wrote a book on the same verse, he and I both did, and his is called With One Voice, Discovering Christ's Song in Our Worship. And I'd uh, recommend that book to you as well. Then I have this little one called, same thing as the seminar, Proclamation and Praise, Hebrews 2.12 and the Christology of Worship. At the first D&T four years ago in Frisco, Texas, uh, Matt Boswell had me bring copies to give everybody a free copy. You don't get a free copy this year, I'm sorry. But that was the plan four years ago. But, uh, but a lot of, if you're interested in, in this topic, you'll find a lot more of it uh, unpacked in that volume. To jump into the subject, though, I want to begin with this passage in Galatians 3, verse 3, where Paul is posing to the Galatians a rhetorical question. Who wants to reach back into English uh, class from high school or whatever and tell me what a rhetorical question is? What is a rhetorical question? Yes? Assume the answer is no. Or uh, where the answer is implied. But okay, yeah, you assume that. You, so it's a question not trying to get new information. It's, it's a question uh, where the answer should be obvious or should be assumed, like you're saying, whether it be yes or no. In this case, no, I think. But uh, so why, why ask a rhetorical question? If, you know, if the answer is obvious, why ask it anyway? Why is a rhetorical question even posed? To make a point. Okay, to make a point, to emphasize something. And that's what I think Paul is doing here. He's saying, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And what's the assumed answer? What's the obvious answer to that question? Yes or no? No. He says, having begun by the Spirit, he's saying, would it be foolish to think that you're now being perfected by the flesh? In fact, later in the same letter, Paul will say, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And what Paul is raising here is, is the issue uh, that's a very important one that we want to look at uh, in the New Testament scriptures, that God doesn't just save us by grace and then turn us loose to do the best we can by our own devices in our own strength. But he has promised to come alongside us in the Christian life. The secret of a Christian life is unlike uh, a physical child growing into an adult where you want the child to gain more and more independence, uh, the Christian walk is growing into more and more dependence upon God, in fact, and drawing on the strength which he provides. And I want to show you a number of verses. Uh, we're going to zip through these pretty quickly. And I meant to say before, got a lot of these references, some later in the presentation, a lot of quotations. And uh, if you're interested, I, I'm certainly willing to share the PowerPoint because there won't be time to jot everything down. You might want to. But I want to, I want to show you a number of examples in the New Testament of the same principle that Paul is raising in Galatians, that we're not on it, or we're not in it by ourselves, but God's promised enablement for us in living the Christian life. First of all, Romans 8:26, familiar verse, 
where Paul says we don't even know how to pray as we should all the time. But he promises that the Spirit himself will intercede for us when we lack the words ourselves. Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you and so forth. And Sinclair Ferguson makes a really interesting observation here that the words be transformed are a passive command. It's a command, but it's a passive command. It never says transform yourself, but be transformed. Allow yourself to be transformed because the transformation work is in fact the work of the spirit as you know. Here's another example, Philippians 2. Just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He says, work out your salvation. But then he immediately turns and says, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So work out your salvation, but you're not doing it alone. It's God at work in you. And that is that important uh, concept we want to see. Colossians 1.29, another example. For this purpose also, Paul says, I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within him. So he's laboring with the power which God provides, which we see again in 1 Corinthians 15.10. I labored, Paul says, I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So God's promised enablement. 2 Corinthians 3.5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul's telling us how we need to live. So he says, examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. So that's how he wants us to live. But then he says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. So he wants us to live sanctified lives, but then he prays that God would do that work in us. And at the end of the passage, he says, faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. There's another one, 2 Thessalonians 1.11, which we'll skip just because of time. Uh, Titus 2.11 and 12, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. What's important to see here is that the word instructing is actually the word uh, in the Greek which, from which we get pedagogy, which is a word that means train, that the grace of God trains us. And that word, like pedagogy suggests, you don't take a little child, and those of you who have little children, you don't just say, here are your instructions for the next 15 years, I'll come back then and see how you're doing. That would be foolhardy. Uh, but rather, a parent, a loving parent, trains, so corrects, encourages, builds up, uh, disciplines when necessary. And that's what Paul is saying, I think, the grace of God does for us. It trains us over time to deny ungodliness and so forth and to live for him. Finally, in Hebrews 13, at the end of this epistle, the writer says, Now may the God of peace so forth equip you with everything good that you may do his will. So the writer and God wants us to do God's will. But the writer is praying that God would equip them to do his will. 
goes on and says, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. The writer, God wants us to do what is pleasing in God's sight. But the writer prays that God would work in us that which is pleasing in his sight. So I've stacked up these examples so you could see what a common theme this is through the New Testament of God's promised presence and enablement through the Holy Spirit coming alongside and helping us, giving his power and strength to live for him. And in a word, what we're simply talking about is grace. Heard the message on grace last night. And uh, as you have, even in the hymn Amazing Grace, Remember it says, uh, amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. But the second verse says, "'Tis grace has seen me safe thus far, and grace will see me home.'" So it's not just a one-time provision of grace for our salvation, but God's promise of continued grace, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, "'I work more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God working in us.'" So the continued provision of, of God's grace for living the Christian life. God doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. God once desires a perfect, holy, sanctified life, and we're not capable of it. But God has promised to give his power to see us along in that process of growing into Christ-likeness and walking with him. So God's grace for salvation, because God requires perfect holiness to enter into heaven, which none of us have. By grace, God provides that in Christ. God's grace for living the Christian life, likewise, as we've seen in these verses, God has promised for us. Now, in the early church, in a theological debate going on between Augustine and Pelagius, uh, Augustine used this phrase, which is saying the same thing, just in another way, that what God requires he provides. That's what grace is all about. God providing what he requires. And that, we need to step back in awe and take in some of the import of a statement like that. Because that's truly what makes Christianity unique out of all faith systems of the world. Every faith system in the world requires its people to do something. But only Christianity suggests that what God requires, he provides. No other system comes close to suggesting something like that. So God's grace doing for us what we could never do by ourselves. So the question rises, why does God work that way? And I think Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4. Again, Peter's talking about how, how we should live. Whoever speaks, we should do... So as one who's speaking the utterances of God, so he helps us know what to say. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. And then he gives the reason why God provides for us what he requires of us. And what's the reason he gives here? Why does God do it? Pardon? So that in all things God may be glorified. Because the Christian life is a not, not a do-it-yourself proposition. So we saw in Ephesians 2 last night, it said, salvation by grace through faith, that no one may boast. Paul says again in 1 Corinthians 1, that, that no one, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, in his promised provision. Or as John Piper likes to say, we get the grace, 
and he gets the glory, which is a pretty good deal. (laughs) We get the grace, and he gets the glory. So God provides for us what he requires of us so that he, in fact, receives all the glory. No one can say, I did it myself. And part of what we looked at last night is the humility to come before God and say, I can't do it myself. But you, God, can. And that's the provision of God's grace for our sanctification as well as our salvation. Second Thessalonians 1 says it as well, but we'll skip that one for now. But what God requires, he provides, and he's done that in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, in the great passage on uh, Jesus as the true vine, says, John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. And Paul turns it around in Philippians 4 and says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So God's promised provision in Jesus Christ. So as I mentioned, God's grace for our salvation, give us the righteousness to enter heaven that we lack on our own. God's provision that we've seen in all these passages for our sanctification, his promised provision and help. And then when it comes to worship, God deserves and expects and commands perfect worship. And none of us are capable of that. What I want us to see is that he has provided for us and on our behalf perfect worship in the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider with me three common misunderstandings that sometimes young or untaught believers have. One is that Jesus came to earth, he lived, he died, he rose, and then in the ascension he left, he left the scene, he went back to heaven, and now he's gone, and now he's distant. That's a misunderstanding, as we'll see. Also sometimes think, well, he came to be man while on earth, and now he's gone back to his God job, so to speak, and he's not man anymore. And we'll see how important that is in a moment as well. And some think, well, he's no longer a high priest. He finished his priestly work when he offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. The book of Hebrews, I don't expect you to jot all this down, but we rightly focus so much in our preaching and teaching on the past ministry of Christ, of course, his finished work on the cross. But the book of Hebrews especially is full of mentions of passages that speak about the present ministry of Christ, uh, which is very, very important as well. And we'll see just how important in a few moments. The present continuing ministry of the living Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, That Jesus is here. Jesus promised, I am with you always to the end of the age. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He is here. And we'll see the importance of that in a few minutes. Jesus is still a man. And this is important just to dip back into history just a little bit as we think about the Reformation this weekend. What, one thing that happened during the Middle Ages, well, before the Middle Ages, uh, as you may know if you study any, any church history, there were great disputes in the church about the true deity of Jesus Christ and his nature and how could he be God and man and so forth. And some of the great councils and creeds of the church came about because of these debates and heretical views, in fact, of Jesus and who he was. And so there was a great desire in part of the church to defend the deity of Jesus Christ which needed to be defended against these heretics. 
But as we go into the Middle Ages, there was such an emphasis on the deity and the exaltation of Christ, which is true and important, but that they began to de-emphasize and neglect a little bit the true humanity of Jesus Christ. And what happened as a result, why this is important, is because what happened as a result, because they neglected his true humanity, they started to say, as we heard uh, some of our speakers give reference to last night, I think, Scotty Smith, uh, that they, the church began to teach, well, you have to go through a priest to get to God. Your worship needs to go through a priest. He's your stand-in. He's the one who will represent you before God. Or they said, well, in order for your prayers to be heard, you have to pray to Mary or to one of the saints. And you can depend on them to d- deliver your prayers for God. So the reformers come about, Luther and Calvin and others, and say, no, no, no. Uh, there is one, and they go back. Again, their drawing is always back to the scriptures, not new teaching, but taking us back to the old teaching of the scriptures, that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And one of the major emphases then of the reformers was that Jesus Christ is the sole mediator, that we do not need to go through a priest. We don't have to go through Mary. We don't have to go through one of the saints, that every believer, you've heard talk about the priesthood of all believers, that through Jesus Christ and his atoning work, every believer has direct access into the very presence of God. And so we don't need somebody else representing us. That's an Old Testament model, you know, where the people had to stand outside the tabernacle and the priests did the worship on their behalf. But now Christ has opened the way into the Father's presence. And so that was a huge emphasis of the Reformation that is based on a a recognition of the true continuing humanity of Jesus Christ, that he's still a man, that there's a man seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Holy God and holy man. And again, we'll see just how important that is as we consider him as our priest, our continuing priest, our living high priest, and our representative and leader of our worship. Because he is still a high priest. The writer of Hebrews says in all these passages, not that we had a high priest, but that we have such a high priest. The great passages comparing him to the figure of Melchizedek in Genesis uh, and the uh, prophecies about Uh, Jesus, where the Father says, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So he's still a priest, and this is why that is so important. Hebrews chapter 7. The writer says, the former priests, they had to be replaced over and over because they kept dying. But Jesus, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. And then he goes on to say why that is crucial. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So the continuing priestly ministry of Jesus Christ guarantees our eternal salvation because he's always representing us before God, interceding for us, mediating between us and God. He's always in that position. That's how important it is. Now we don't have a a lot of time to go into this in great depth, but an important basic biblical 
uh, principle which goes through all of the scriptures and is important for understanding worship as well is this, and underlies really all we're doing at doxology and theology uh, is this pattern of revelation and response that all worship is a response to God because he has first shown us himself who he is what he's like what he wants that revelation is a prerequisite to all true honest worship before God. See, other religions get it backwards. They say, what do I need to do to God, for God? What do I need to offer up to him so that he might show himself to me or be good to me or whatever? And biblical Christianity says exactly the opposite. And the Old Testament says, says as well that we can worship because God has first taken the initiative by his grace to show us himself and to show himself graceful, gracious uh, on our behalf. And again, what we're talking about here is theology and doxology. That's why Scotty Smith said last night, maybe it should, the conference should be called Theology and Doxology rather than Doxology and Theology because this necessarily comes first. The order is all important. That's unique to Christianity and not to other religions. The God speaks first. It's because of his initiative to show us himself and to act on our behalf that we can worship at all. So uh, as, as uh, J.I. Packer said once, the purpose of theology is doxology. They belong together, they're inseparable. That theology without doxology is just empty and bare and meaningless unless we turn it back to God and praise the things we learn about it. But likewise, and this is the genius of this conference, likewise doxology should never be separated from theology. We need to worship God as he really is, as he has revealed himself to be. And so we, that's why we need the scriptures, as they were saying yesterday, throughout our worship services. So we're hearing from God as well as speaking to him with our songs and prayers and whatnot. And again, a lot more could be said about that. But they belong together. That's why Packer says the purpose of theology is doxology. We study in order to praise. That's how important the praises of his people is. We'll see that even more as we go on here. So that biblical pattern underlying all, all, of our, all that we know of the way God interacts with human beings is that he acts first to show himself. And we see that throughout the scriptures. Adam and Eve hid themselves after their sin, and God went looking for them. Where are you? And Abraham was was a heathen, a pagan, and God calls him and sends him forth. Abraham believes God and it's counted to him for righteousness. So it's the pattern of redemption, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace you have been saved by faith. It is not your doing. It is the work of God. For we have been created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Ephesians 2, 10. Same thing. Our good works are a grateful response to what God has freely given to us in the Savior. Not as a way to gain that favor, but as a grateful response for that favor. A lot more could be said about that and should be said about that. But when we look at the Old Testament, we find that Moses was the mediator, that is the spokesman for God, to the people. So Moses went up on the mountain 
God gave his instructions to Moses, and, came, and Moses was to come down and deliver that message to, people, to the people. He was the spokesman. He was the mediator. His brother Aaron, on the other hand, was the first high priest. He was the spokesman. He was the representative of the people before God. As the first high priest, he led the response of the people in worship through the sacrificial system. So Moses represented God to the people. Aaron represented the people before God. You see that? Does that make sense? Later on in Israel's histories, we see the same kind of setup where the prophets were the spokesmen for God. So we read the word of God came to Jeremiah. The word of God came to Isaiah. God spoke to the prophet. The prophet's job was to be the mouthpiece and to take God's message and deliver it to the people. The priest still had the responsibility of leading the people in their response of worship back to God. What we find in the New Testament is the amazing fact that Jesus Christ as the God-man perfect in his deity and humanity fills both of those roles so that as God he can represent God to us and as man he can represent us before God so he fills in a wonderful way that role and that that truth is encapsulated uh, beautifully and succinctly in this little verse from Hebrews 2 verse 12 Hebrews 2 verse 12 which the writer said, it's actually quoted from Psalm 22. But the writer there says that this is Jesus speaking. Jesus says this, and he says it to the Father. He says, Father, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. And in the midst of the congregation, Father, I will sing your praise. And what you see here, I hope you can see it, is a perfect representation of that revelation response paradigm we just talked about, where Jesus says, I will proclaim your name to my brethren, Father, and in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise, Father. You see that? Where is that? I will proclaim your name to revelation. It's proclaiming the Father's name. Response. He's singing the Father's praise in the midst of the congregation. Now we want to unpack that little verse. That's the pregnant little verse I was talking about. First of all, Jesus says, I will proclaim your name to my brother. As you know, Jesus' earthly ministry, he came to show the Father. He came to represent the Father, to literally to incarnate the Father, to enflesh what God was like before the people. And so Jesus says in passages like Matthew 11. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That's what he came to do, to show the Father. Or the Father's name, as you know, a person's name in the Bible talks of his nature, what he's like, his personality. So he comes to reveal the Father's nature or name. John 1, uh, word became flesh, dwelt among us, we beheld his glory. Then in 18, he says, John says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. In John 17, the night before the crucifixion, Jesus says to the Father in his prayer, I have manifested your name. Again, I've revealed your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. For I've given them the words that you gave me. I have given them your word. He is communicated God's message and God's nature to the people. And now 
Jesus says to the Father, and now, as you sent me into the world, so I am sending them into the world. So he's sending them to do the same ministry. Because he doesn't ask for these only, Jesus says to the Father, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So he is delegating to the disciples and those that follow him the ministry of continuing that message about the Father. And we'll skip all this. But at the end of the prayer, it's really interesting to see what he says. He says, I made known to them your name. That's what we saw during his earthly ministry. But on the night before the crucifixion, he looks beyond the cross and says, Father, I will continue to make it known. Looking beyond the cross, and he's sending the disciples, as we just said, with the words which the Father gave to the Son, he gives to the disciples now. That it's now through his human agents that he is going to continue to make the Father's name known. I think it's even more brilliantly seen here in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, where Luke is writing his second volume after the Gospel of Luke. And he begins this book by talking about the first one. And he says, in the first book, the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I've begun, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. With the clear implication, I think, that in the book of Acts, he's about to now relate what Jesus continues to do and to teach. Only now he's going to do it through the church, through the apostles, through the Holy Spirit he gives to the church. So continuing the ministry, as Jesus said in John, he said, I will send another comforter. So the Holy Spirit's going to continue his work. He's the first comforter, and another comforter is going to come and represent him and work through the church to continue uh, the ministry. I think this is uh, crucial for those of you who are pastors or teach the word of God in any context to recognize that according to what we've just seen here, the ministry of making God's nature and God's word known to the people is the ministry of Jesus Christ, the continuing ministry of Jesus Christ. He wants to use us, but to realize it's not my ministry of teaching, it's Christ's ministry of teaching. And that we have the high and holy privilege and the humbling one of representing Christ, whose ministry it is, in a continuing fashion, to make the Father known. I will make your name known to my brethren, Jesus says, and he wants to do it through us. So let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. The word, when we proclaim it, it's the word of Christ which he wants to speak to people about the Father, and we get to represent him and uh, to be his spokesman as he continues his ministry. Us. Augustine said something very similar. God in and through Christ is the real teacher and the preacher is the teaching assistant. It's Christ's ministry of teaching. Or I, I noticed this just, uh, just a few months ago in this familiar song we all know, more, more about Jesus, and I think it's the third verse, it says, more about Jesus and his word, holding communion with my Lord, hearing his voice in every line. It's talking about seeing Jesus in the word and hearing his voice in every line, making each faithful saying mine. 
So it's him that's speaking through the word, uh, telling us about the Father. And we get to represent him in that ministry. And then the second half of Hebrews 2.12 is remarkable too. Maybe even more remarkable. Where Jesus says, Jesus says, Father, when the congregation gathers, I will be there in their midst singing your praise. (laughs) That's an amazing concept. John Calvin, in his commentary on Hebrews 2.12, calls Christ the chief conductor of our hymns. (laughs) That Jesus Christ has promised to be in the midst of his people and they gather for worship. And uh, gathering up our imperfect offerings and offering them as part of his perfect offering to the Father. And look what Hebrews 10 says. This climactic passage... um, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 10, where the writer is, after 10 chapters, he's starting to make application. He says, therefore, because of all we've talked about before, about the superiority of Christ, the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant, how it's been done away with, and the benefits we, and advantages we have of being in Christ. And he says, therefore, and down, he doesn't give the verb till it's one of those long, sentences like Scotty Smith was talking about last night. The command then is because you have all this in Christ, let us draw near in full assurance of faith. Because Christ, and he gives two reasons why we should draw near with full assurance of faith. The first reason is since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Because Jesus has opened the way into God's presence. As we read in the Gospels, when Jesus died on the cross, that the veil of the temple that was the way into the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom, signifying that Jesus had removed the the barrier of sin that separated us from God. And because of that, he has opened, as we see here, this new and living way, which he opened for us through the curtain into the very presence of God. So we can draw near with confidence, he says, and assurance because Jesus has opened the way. But he gives a second reason why we can draw close in confidence and assurance. He says, since we have, not had, but since we have a great priest over the house of God. So yes, it's because of Jesus' past ministry and what he did for us 2,000 years ago, but it's also because he is alive and present and in our midst. And as one uh, writer said, it's not that he just opened the way and showed the way to us, but he takes us with him. And one writer defined worship as the privilege of entering in with Christ into the relationship of love and fellowship, which he himself enjoys with the Father. Which is a deep and amazing concept uh, to think about. And that's, that's what we heard this morning. We, he loves us as much as, Jesus, as he loves Jesus. And we're invited in him to draw close with confidence and assurance because of what he did in the past and because of his present ministry in our midst, empowering and shaping and leading us in our worship. I read on a CD of a worship conference, a worship concert a few years ago, and I don't remember who the artist was just as well. But the reviewer said the artist ushered the crowd into his presence with uplifting praise and worship melodies throughout the night. And I, and I thought, no. And uh, God, uh, Bob Coughlin, who we heard this morning, said it so well. 
He said, no worship leader, pastor, band, or song will ever bring us close to God. Worship itself cannot lead us into God's presence. Only Jesus himself can bring us into God's presence. So worship leader, please don't labor under the idea that you have to lead people into the presence of God. Who is up for that task? Who can draw close that way? We talked about teaching is Christ's ministry. Leading worship is Christ's ministry as well. In the midst of the congregation, Father, I will sing your praise. That those of us who plan and lead worship are representing Christ, whose ministry it is, to take us to the Father's presence, to lead us to the throne of grace. And it's not up to us to do it in our own power alone, but to trust in him. And he takes us with him. Like in the hymn, To God Be the Glory. O come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory. Great things he has done. So we see that biblical pattern we've talked about of revelation and response, which we find throughout the scriptures. We find it ultimately fulfilled and filled up in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ himself who as God can perfectly represent God to us and as man can perfectly represent us before the Father in our response. So the bottom line is that New Testament worship, it's been said, New Testament Christianity is Christ. Well, New Testament worship is Christ. It's in, through, and by Christ even because there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He leads us in our response. So Jesus himself is the fulfillment of that biblical pattern of revelation and response. Revelation of God to us is through Christ and our response is through and even by Christ. I need need you to show you this, another beautiful example that in 2 Corinthians 1.20, amazing little verse where Paul encapsulates for us in two little words actually all that God has done in and for us through Jesus Christ. He says for as many as are the promises of God in him that is in Christ they are yes. That's the first word. Jesus Christ is God's yes to us. All that God has done for us in Christ is God's way of saying yes. And he'll never change his mind. He'll never say no or maybe. He has said yes to you and to me in Jesus Christ by his own grace, not our own doing as we saw last night, but by his own grace, he has said yes to us in Jesus Christ. And all that's left for us to do is say amen. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. He has said yes to us in Jesus Christ. Therefore, also through him, through Christ, even our response, that's what we're talking about, even our response is through Christ as well. He leads us in our response, and it's all to the glory of God as we've been talking about in this, con- uh, in this conference. So those of you who are preachers, there's a sermon for you that people will remember because it's a two-word sermon. It's yes and amen. And the yes comes first. Again, God's initiative, all that he has done for us and in us through Christ, 
the security we have because God has said yes to us in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. And all that's left for us to do, all of our life, all of our service, all of our worship are simply ways of saying amen to God because of what he has done, because he has said yes to us in Jesus Christ. Everything else, you don't say amen until you have something to say amen to, right? It just doesn't come out of the blue. You say a great truth and the brother says Amen or hallelujah, yeah. So it's a response. It's always a response for what God has first done. He said yes in Christ to each one of us. And he'll never change his mind. And all we're left to do in all our walk and life and worship is to say amen. A grateful response to God for what he has freely given to us in Christ. So here's some practical implications for our worship of these truths we've been talking about. The first is the truth of the presence of Christ. That he's not gone. He has promised to be in our midst. And the Holy Spirit makes him real and present to us in our midst as we gather in worship. And we need to acknowledge that and the fact that where true worship is happening, it is because Jesus, as promised, is in the midst of his people, leading them in their response of worship to God. True worship is Trinitarian worship. Uh, James Torrance, I mentioned before, said that too much evangelical worship tends to be Unitarian in nature, in the sense that God is way off up there and we're left to do uh, the best we can in our own resources and devices to try to bring a worthy offering of worship to him. And he says, no, no, no. True worship is Trinitarian worship. Uh, and that's what John Woodfleet says here, that God the Father, uh, actually, let me go, this summarizes it uh, on the next slide, that the Father receives our worship. We offer it up to the Father through Christ. The Son takes our imperfect offerings and perfects them. And the Spirit prompts our heart, draws worship out of our hearts. So all the members of the Trinity are involved in worship. It's not a one-sided thing, and we're certainly not left to do worship in our own strength. Worship is the gift. This is what I was mentioning before. Worship is the gift of participating through the Spirit in the incarnate Son's communion with the Father. So he didn't just open the way to the Father. Oops, what happened to our image? Did it just go out? Or has it been out? That's weird. There it is. Well, there. He didn't just open the way to the Father. He doesn't just show us the way. He takes us with him. Martin Luther said, Christ is not only the companion. He's the ferryman. He takes us. He takes us with him. Presence of Christ among us. The second implication is the constant of Christ. That again, where true worship is happening all over the world, no matter what the outward trappings may be of dress or style or music or instruments or whatnot, where true worship is happening, it's because Christ, as promised, is in the midst of his people, leading us in our worship to the Father. And that's what uh, Reggie Kidd talks about so well in this With One Voice, discovering Christ's song in our worship. That it's Christ's song, and he he makes this statement that, let me suggest that every voice brings its own voice. We each have our own expressions. 
but no group brings the official voice. One voice sings above them all, the son singing the father's praise in the midst of the congregation. And that brings great glory to God. The point of this is, as James Torrance said, that no matter what church denomination we're with, no matter what instrument style instruments we use, there is in fact only one way to come to the Father and worship. And that is through Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. There's one way to God. And that's a crucial unifying truth that, that binds all of us in our worship in this conference and worship in fact through the body of Christ all over the world. That there is one way to the Father no matter all the different ways our worship may look like. The third implication is that God does not delight in our worship because we have brought such good worship, because we have, have such a hot man, or we've practiced so well, or it's so tight, or we found just the right leader, or just the right song, or whatnot. What we've seen of Christ's role in leading our worship means that God is pleased with our worship because we come in and through Jesus Christ with whom God is always pleased. And brothers and sisters, for those of you who are worship, most of you are worship leaders, right? Who are worship leaders? Most of you? Okay. This is a declaration of independence for you as worship leaders. Yes, we bring our best. Yes, we practice. I have to say that quickly for Joe Kreider because he wants his groups to practice. Okay. But, um, but we're not going to impress God with our music. We bring our best, but ultimately we realize that God will delight in it because we come in and through his son and his son's perfect offering of worship, taking our imperfect offerings, perfecting them and offering them on our behalf before the Father. And that means we don't, like I said, we don't have to worry about was my worship good enough? If we come through Christ, God always delights in our worship. This is God's grace for our worship. We're not on a performance basis before God in getting our worship accepted even, any more than we're on a performance basis before God in our walk in the Christian life. It's God's grace for our worship. God expects and deserves and commands perfect worship, which we can't do, but God provides for us in Jesus Christ. That means a little country church with a couple singers that can't sing and a piano that's missing strings, that that worship can be just as pleasing to God as a big city church with a choir and orchestra and a pipe organ and whatnot. It's the presence of and the leadership of Jesus Christ that brings pleasure and delight to the Father. So, so worship leaders, if you're pastors, don't put this on your worship leaders or don't let the people put this on your worship leaders that you're responsible for making worship happen for them. And when worship is all of life, they need to be doing it through the week. And uh, don't feel like you have to bear this, the one burden of leading people into the presence of God or looking or a church looking for a person who can do that. Only Jesus can do it, as we saw in the Coughlin quote. So let's depend on him and rejoice in his grace for our worship, in the freedom we have for our worship, not to come with fear, but as we saw in Hebrews 10, to come with confidence and with assurance uh, before the Father, dressed in Christ and his righteousness, like we've 
seen all through the conference. We come with that confidence knowing that our worship is always acceptable to God when we come through Christ. Let me read to you just a few quotes which are important and then we'll be done. This is what James Torrance said. God does not accept us because we are offered, we have offered worthy worship. In his love, he accepts us freely and the person of his beloved son who in our name and on our behalf in our humanity has made the one offering to the father which alone is acceptable to God for all humanity, for all nations, for all times, and unites us with himself in the one body in his communion with the Father. So again, freedom, grace for our worship leading. And it's even more powerful in this quote from Robert Weber, which is a long quote, several screens, but it's worth hearing in its entirety. I think it's really, really crucial. Who can do it? Who can love God with all his heart, mind, and soul? Who can achieve perfect union with God? Who can worship God with a pure and unstained heart? Not me, not you, not Billy Graham, not Matt Redman, not anybody I know or you know. Only Jesus can. And he does for me and for you what neither of us can do for ourselves. This is the message that is missing in the literature of contemporary worship. And I hasten to add, it's missing in the literature of traditional worship, too. <laughs> Not to take a side. It is too much about what I ought to do. Okay, we have practical sessions here, but beyond that, we look beyond. It's too much about what I ought to do and too little about what God has done for me. That's why the theology along with the doxology, they belong together. God has done for me what I cannot do for myself. He did it in Jesus Christ. Therefore, my worship is offered in a broken vessel that is in the process of being healed, but is not yet capable of fullness of joy, endless intense passion, absolute exaltation, and celebration. Worship leaders, you don't have to try to gin up all those things and say, I got to arrive before I can lead people in worship. But Jesus, who shares in my humanity yet without sin, is not only my Savior. He is also my complete and eternal worship, doing for me in my place what I cannot do. He is eternally interceding to the Father on our behalf. And for this reason, our worship is always in and through Christ. Thanks for Jesus Christ, who is my worship. We are free, and in gratitude we offer our stumbling worship in the name of Jesus with thanksgiving. It's all of grace. God requires perfect worship. He has provided it for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the writer of Hebrews at the end says, through him, through Christ then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. One quick story and we're done. Martin Luther, I think it may have been mentioned last night, had a friend, a, a mentor, before he left the priesthood, called Johann von Staupitz. And Staupitz said to Luther one day, well, what if you get your reformation? What about all, go, all the pilgrimages and the relics and the ceremonies, all those things that have been so precious to us all along? What will be left, Luther, when you're through? And Luther said, Christ. He's all we need. 
He is the bridge, the ladder between heaven and earth, between God and man. He is our mediator. He's our great high priest. And he's the leader of our worship. Let's pray together. Father, how we thank you for your grace. We celebrate that throughout this conference. And we thank you for your grace for our worship. We don't have to come with fear or doubt or wondering. And we don't even need to lead in that way because of what your son has accomplished on our behalf and what he is still accomplishing on our behalf as he represents us before you. We thank you for that freedom, that liberation that comes uh, from that great truth. And I pray that would be indeed liberating for brothers and sisters here to, to do their best, to give their most, but not to take on their shoulders something which they can't take on their shoulders, but which they don't need to take on their shoulders because Jesus has borne it and he bears it for us and he takes us and leads us perfectly before you and into your presence. And how we thank you for that grace eternally through Jesus Christ, our great Lord and high priest. Amen. Thank you so much.